Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone with a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. Plank the first to help you write more, plank the second to help you write better and plank the third to help you be a little bit happier as you do those things. On today's episode I am chatting to comedian and author Alastair Beckett-King. Um, we talk about, I mean I'm so this is the first interview of the new season and it's been not actually not that long since uh, the last interview from uh, last season. But I recorded a bunch of interviews with people I really wanted to speak to and it's just made me really happy. That's like it's, it doesn't really help you uh, pause the coming interview to know that me, a not very credible advocate for my own content, um, had a lovely time doing it but um just uh fyi there's a little sleeve note for you i've really enjoyed chatting to people and talking about books and listening to their thoughts on it and i i, I don't really have any curatorial policy with who i have on the show except uh people who i think seem interesting and nice and <laughs> <laughs> that might sound like i'm damning with faint praise but i genuinely mean it that i i just want people who seem like chill who make stuff that i often enjoy or just seem like sort of lovely interesting people who will probably have a variety of different perspectives on the writing process because there's no one writer there's no one way to write and so you know this show would get extremely dull and unhelpful if it was just me telling you my thoughts on how you should write so it's really important for me to get in other voices and have other people talk about it and very few people that I get on the show will come in and be super didactic about the I have discovered the one way to write they'll have their ideas and they're often a little bit self-effacing but they can definitely give you some perspective and I hope it's useful and also talk about the stuff that they write and then often you know you'll find through this new books you want to read new authors that you whose stuff that you go wow oh, i didn't know this existed and that's really cool or i'll be talking to an author whose stuff you already love and you'll get a bunch of new insights into books you've already read so uh, we talk uh, about a variety of things including writing comedy including the nature of how we should write about magic and personal preferences on how we pre present the mysterious and otherworldly and and then we talk about children's fiction as well and particularly uh as his new book uh montgomery bonbon murder at the museum which is the beginning of a series of of murder mysteries for young readers which is such a cool it's just really fun and exciting and you may have seen some of his great videos on uh, YouTube or on Twitter which are often in the form of very very uh, loving and brilliantly rendered parody and I, I, I think or maybe even pastiche parody always sounds like it's kind of sending something up and I think often pastiche is we talk about this as well this idea of really good parody often showing like a real affection for the form including all its uh eccentricities 
And I think this is going to be a great episode if you're interested in writing for children, if you're interested in style, if you're interested in comedy, if you're interested in the nature of a mystery, which, you know, I took a, I sort of for, tentatively nudge the idea forward that uh, mysteries are in some ways this sort of core form of the story because they're you know a character moves through them discovering various things learning more uh, which is often present through all different genres and, and i think that's true of genre in general that like when we talk about a mystery or a romance or an action story actually of course all of those things can happen within a single story but this is uh, you know anyway i really enjoyed uh this talk and i hope you enjoy it too I don't really have any much more to say, except uh, if you like the show, of course, share it and talk about it. And um, we've got a Discord, so you can come and chat to other people who listen to the show. And you can, if you're into, into the art of writing um, at any level, then you can offer your feedback on other listeners' uh, work. We share some work on there and you can even share your own if you'd like to at some point. Um, uh, uh, very soon um, I'm going to do an episode giving feedback on a listener's work I've just got these uh, I've, I've got these interviews that I want to get out in a timely manner v vaguely uh, around uh, release schedules for the authors in question but um, that's not going to stop me making some of these uh, first page feedback episodes and so if you'd like to submit your work for one at a future episode then you can do that as well you can go on my website timclairpoet.co.uk and uh, click on the contact me link and that's just a way if you want to say hello as well you can get in touch with me and I'm an author and there's blah 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 links to the books in the show notes if you'd like to grab one also uh, a link to uh, Montgomery Bonbon uh, which you can search for as well or go into a bookshop and buy, but I'll put a, a link in the description of today's episode so you can just click through that and grab a copy if you'd like one. I thoroughly recommend it. I, m any book that opens with a, with a map is always... I'm always, like, quite going to be quite into anyway. I, it's always... I'm. It's always going to be... I'm on side. And then... It's just lovely. It's just a very, very enjoyable book to read. It's like real, real pleasure. And I, I don't I sort of don't want to spoil it, except because we'll, we talk about it in this episode anyway. But um, there's just a lot of that rewards on the line. A lot of it sounds like diminishing something saying it's a fun. You know, there's a very funny line, but just like the 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 voice of this world and the little notes at nods of absurdity that happen all the way through you just find something to reward on every page as well as having this plot and character driven story and i think it's rare that you get all of those things in one package so just a deeply lovely and pleasurable book to read so i i fully uh i fully endorse it for what little weight my endorsement carries um and also, if you like the show and you want to drop me a few beans, you can do so via my coffee page, ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare. That's it. That's all I have to say. Please, I beg of you, enjoy my chat with Alistair Beckett King.
Was there a time you can remember when you first realised that stories or, you know, words were important? That's a really interesting question. I, I think perhaps my memory isn't up to the task. Um, I'm, <laughs> I, I have a sh- shockingly, alarmingly bad memory. Um, uh, but I suppose... I've always been into sort of um, fantasy and magic and that sort of thing, but I've never been a extensive reader in sort of high fantasy novels. But uh, I think I had the reason I think I was uh, I'm attracted to and was as a as a kid attracted to like Ursula Le Guin and um, Terry Pratchett uh, when I was younger. You know, very heavily Terry Pratchett is. That by contrast with um, like Tolkien and more, what am I saying? There's an understanding, I think, in Le Guin and Terry Pratchett's writing of what magic is, which is that essentially it's language and the way language allows you to reshape reality. Whereas I think perhaps Tolkien isn't to blame, but perhaps the fans of Tolkien are to blame for the way, um, and perhaps the creators of RPG games are to blame for the way magic is compartmentalized and codified and oh you know you need to use ice magic to defeat the the, the fire lizard and i to my to my mind what makes magic magic is that it's uh it's instinctive um and um unclassifiable and it it, it, it can't be mapped out it's the way people are able to use the power of language to 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 affect certain changes. Can, can you? Does that make any sense? Any of, I wasn't really yeah, prepared. Do, you know, it absolutely does. <laughs> I should yeah, let the no, know. No, no, I, I've only just had breakfast, so I I just woke <laughs> up. So if that doesn't so make sense, me, I apologise. No, it, it totally does. It's like you're saying that I think they're normally thought of as like uh, hard and soft magic systems, right? Oh, oh, you, uh, yeah, you, you, are, you have not, you have brought a, a gun to this knife fight. You are <laughs> prepared. <laughs> uh, it's, 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 but it's that idea that you're, you're saying that magic uh, should is magic is not physics, and it kind of it. It should. It, you enjoy magic most when it's a sort of bit weird, but when it happens, it sort of feels intuitively right. Yes, exactly that. Is that right? Exactly that. And I'm a big fan of um, folk tales. When I was a, uh, a, f- a film student years ago, um, all of the things I was writing were about the the way folk tales worked in relation to. Uh, you know, I'm a, quite a fan of the um, structuralist critics of uh, folk tales and and the way that the structure of the the folk tale is repeated time and again not a huge fan of um joseph campbell or the hero with a thousand faces which turns that into a recipe for how to make stories um i i i think the the learning the 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 way stories work in fairy tales is that the ending feels right and it feels right yes because it chimes with certain structural things that we sort of pick up as we hear fairy tales and we learn the rules of how fairy tales work. But they're not actually rules. It's just that they have that feeling of being right. And and real magic, and I, I use that term quite wrongly, <laughs> but re, the, the kind of magic that I regard as being magical, um, 
has that feeling. Yeah, that sort of gut feeling of like, yes, it seems right that it should work that way. Can you can you think of any? Uh, it, it, it's really I'm really enjoying this conversation. Just to say, I know that's early to sort of make that claim, but just because <laughs> everything every book you've mentioned is saying that you like or is your favourite, I've got my bookshelf in front of me, and I've been able to to glance kind of Kaiser Soze like at the exact reference. So I'm now looking at a copy of Prop's Morphology of the Folktale. <laughs> well, I didn't thinking, want to drop the I name Vladimir Prop. I can pretend like I understand all this conversation. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention Vladimir Prop. I just, I just gestured in his direction. But yeah, um, <laughs> um, I, well, I, maybe I can illustrate with that with a, something that I've come to understand about myself in, in relation to Narnia, I've always been a big fan of Narnia. I like C.S. Lewis's writing. I, I'm an atheist, but I don't hold Christianity against him. Um, I, I quite like his science fiction as well. Um, and f- in fact, I can make the same point perhaps in relation to his um, Silent Planet trilogy as I, I would uh, in relation to the Chronicles of Narnia. When, would you be able to give us for people who haven't read Silent Planet, ah, yeah. give like a little pricey of what happens? That's a great it? point because they're they're, they're three um, I, uh, relatively obscure considering T.S. Lewis is a, a pretty well known writer uh, novels. They are um, three quite different science fiction novels in the same series. The first of them is excellent. Uh, the second one I find insufferably pious. And the third one is really funny. So it's a, it's a that's a, that is the full experience of C.S. Lewis right there. Um, without any spoilers, the third one is like um, uh, an unfilmed Doctor Who special. Um, it's got wow. uh, it, it's got you know mad English scientists in an old country house. It's got Merlin. It's got a decapitated head that talks. It is. It has got every. It's. it's I, I genuinely think it's a very entertaining book. It's wonderful, and it's English science fiction, which means it's just posh people with pipes going. Well, this is jolly strange. What are we, what are we going to do about this? <laughs> I say this is a terrible situation we've got ourselves into. Quiet, quiet down, Jemima. Stop screaming. <laughs> um, the 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 premise of the first book, which is a sort of wonderful melding of um, religion with science fiction, is that the silent planet is Earth because Earth, due to the fall of man, has been cut off from God's beneficence and so the sort of the psychic connections that all living beings on all of other planets have have been severed and we've been left on our own so that's why the planet earth is the silent planet because the other planets can't communicate with us um the uh, and which uh, I, you know i find very uh, interesting um uh, and in, in the second book uh, the the fall of man begins again on another planet and it's up to a human to try to um intervene and prevent the devil from achieving on venus what he achieved on earth um through largely punching which is uh <laughs> I, I, I don't want to spoil it but there's a lot of punching and it's just very dull um he, he's re he's recreating the the you know the biblical stories <laughs> there was a few punches bit punching in the bible yeah uh, the example i was going to draw from the chronicles of narnia would be when i was a kid i really loved discovering the magician's nephew which is written sort of as a what we would now call a prequel to the line the witch and the wardrobe where many of the things that appear in the line the witch and the wardrobe are explained and i'm not sure it's it's a like a 70 year old book so i can do some spoilers but uh we, we have a little boy character spoiler the little boy is the professor from line the witch and the wardrobe and we have um we have uh, the seed of a magic apple 
and the seed plant, and then it grows a tree, and then a wardrobe gets made out of that tree. So that's where the wardrobe from Lion, which the wardrobe comes from. And also, we explain the origin of the lamppost in the middle of the woods in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah, I heard C.S. Lewis was really bothered by he like kind of he wrote that as a bit of sort of whimsy, and then he kind of like later on when he was right, he was like, I. Seems like a, 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 a lamppost doesn't belong in the woods. See, <laughs> as Lewis, and, and, allow me to take you to one side and explain why you were right the first time. <laughs> um, if I may arrogantly um, tell C.S. Lewis his, his business. Uh, yeah, he would be. And, and of course, um, Tolkien would have been furious. So I imagine there was some, some yeah, punching I mean, going the on. Inkling, the... <laughs> they were... yeah, yeah. Would, would make us a How did he get there? <laughs> a lamppost in the woods is magical. An explanation for why there is a lamppost in the woods is not. And I think it, it's very pleasing. It's pleasing to the, the fans' sense of having an all-encompassing understanding of something, which is why um, our, our media now is full of fantastical stories, full of prequels and origin stories and backstory. And I hate all of it, and all of it is completely unnecessary in my view. I am largely against all of these things. Um I, I don't want to know where things come from, only where they're going. Um, and I may be slightly overstating my case here, but um, in explaining where the lamppost come from, comes from, it's no longer really magical. And the the story, I think, begins with him having the image of the, um, the lamppost in the woods with pre- Christmas presents scattered. And the fact that there is Christmas in Narnia and a lamppost in Narnia doesn't make any kind of sense. But it feels right, and and you know, so many children have read the book and marvelled at that at that image. It's the thing that drew us in. It was the it's the real magic. It is it is the deeper magic that C.S. Lewis seems not to have completely understood. I, I wonder. I wonder if that's why I often find myself really enjoying uh, some uh, sort of Japanese stuff like uh, Spirited Away and movies like that where it may well be that some of the rules are just following uh, Japanese folk tradition and if you'd heard the stories you'd go okay well obviously the Tanuki is drunk that we know that they always are or something like that but to me it just feels like everyone in the story knows oh like you just have to pick your parents you just have to say which of them are which pigs they are out of a lineup yeah otherwise they'll be pigs forever and you kind of go yeah because everyone in the story accepts it i don't go well that doesn't seem like it would really happen you go i, I suppose your that sense of wonder can be preserved as long as everyone in the story sort of goes well of course it's this way yeah. and then you and then you just feel almost like out of embarrassment i feel like well yeah i, I guess i should have known well i i <clears throat> i agree and i remember watching spirited away for the first time and thinking as her parents were eating and i guess it's something in the animation i thought they're going to turn into pigs and then there was no i don't know how i knew that i assume it's the genius of the animators rather than me as the viewer but i knew they were going to turn into pigs before they turned into pigs and when they turned into pigs i was like of course they've turned into pigs because that because that is that is what should have happened now yeah i think i and it's it's funny how, um, yeah, sometimes a younger audience, uh, like when I watch stuff with my daughter, sometimes she'll see those things coming before I do because she's open to the possibility that someone could turn into a pig. Uh, 
her sense of reality is a bit more plastic. Yes. I want to. I want to ask. Uh, and this is a, a, a little bit of a, uh, a wrenched transition, but it might have some validity. And you can say it doesn't if it doesn't. But um, I, I because um, you know you've you moved into comedy, and I want to talk about how you started out in there. But it also strikes me that um. A lot of the videos you make uh, work in the realm of kind of pastiche and parody where you're taking on a kind of genre or a yes. and sort of lovingly sending it up. And I wonder if your interest in structuralism and in the kind of quote unquote, not rules, but norms of a genre or a thing, um, if your love of that was what sort of led you into working in that way. That's a good question. I do think I'm, uh, I'm, I'm good at pastiche, and I'm not sure whether that's a good thing to be good at. I think it'd probably be great to be just uh, an original <laughs> genius producing incomprehensible <laughs> stuff nobody's ever seen before. But, uh, but in terms of, I, yeah, I sort of, um, I don't know when I realised that I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably good at imitating styles of writing. Um, you know, I have. Uh, I, a reasonably, reasonably good sort of sense of the vocabulary of different styles, but but also, um, I'm quite a visual person, and you know, obviously my my little internet skits are all done on a shoestring budget with just me in front of a green screen in my flat. But in the context of me in front of a green screen in my flat, I really make an effort to to make the thing I'm working on look as much as I can like the thing that I'm spoofing and i try to th you know try to think about how how these things are films how how are shots framed uh, what did what you know what does the film stop look like how how were visual effects achieved at the time that this was made how does the animation work at that time and try to do it like that because i don't i don't know why it appeals to me i don't know why a good spoof or a good pastiche appeals to me as strongly as it does I think uh, it's funny because you mentioned Terry Pratchett and uh, Ursula Le Guin, and I feel like they are both people who are deeply steeped in their traditions. And I wouldn't call them... Uh, I mean, Terry Pratchett a little bit. He has his own voice, but like often the then stories he te he te he's telling are, kind of, are pastiches Certainly. or like loving retellings of things. So, you know, it's some of the best writers um, who feel, you know, Ursula Le Guin and Terry Pratchett, you'd never feel like they were copies of anyone else. But I do feel like they were, you know, I feel like the Earthsea uh, books are definitely her doing her own version of the stories that she really enjoyed. And with Terry Pratchett, it feels like he's often doing, you know, a... Uh, a, a murder, you know, a detective mystery, or he's doing a kind of war story, but in his own style. So it seems like you're, you know, in good company. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, especially about Terry Pratchett. And I think there is an enjoyment as a reader in in realizing what's going on. You know, so like as you say, when you read one of the Captain Vimes novels in the Discworld series. Going, oh, okay, so this one's a hard-boiled detective story, whereas this later one is more of a uh, a contemporary crime novel in terms of its structure or its uh, its tone, uh, but but all uh, all interpreted through the eyes, seen through the eyes of the Discworld's characters who don't know that, and so there's a little bit of sort of the reader has a little bit of detective work to do to 
to make sense of the the gag essentially, which is which is very satisfying. There's something very pleasing about seeing something familiar presented in an unfamiliar way and going, oh, it's it's that, it's that thing. And I think fantastical. I'm not a huge fan of superheroes, and I think I think superhero films play on this an awful lot because you can. You know, all, all that has to happen in a superhero film is for a Joker to appear and we go, ah, I know what that means because there's a character called the Joker. And we get very excited, you know, if you, for instance, end a film by turning over a card that's a Joker or something, uh, which happens in one of the Batmans, one of the Batman films. Uh, and that's that's that has huge sort of extra textual significance for the fans because it's like, oh, well, how will this thing that is familiar to us the Joker, be presented in a way which is unfamiliar, like a new, you know, a new uh, take on that character. And um, I think that is simultaneously something that really appeals to me, but that I've grown a little bit tired of because it's uh, quite quite easy to do that, I think. It, it feels like... Um, it, I suppose people call it fan service these days. Sorry, I'm sorry, I just watched Star Trek... Card series three, um, where a huge amount of the enjoyment is in recognizing things, and I did enjoy it, but angrily in that respect. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying it, yeah. but I'm not. I don't approve, but I am enjoying this. And you know, fair play. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all old. Let's let's just give them one more payday. You know, it's nice to see the old gang. Um, but. What I think it's a, a variant, if you if you will allow me to get even more pretentious. I think it's a variant on dramatic irony, and it's it's it works in in stories that have a supernatural or fantastical element particularly well. The unassuming hero who has abilities that are beyond the norm will be mistaken for an ordinary person by some street thug or gangster who will try and start a fight with what looks like an ordinary uh, journalist or you know student. Uh, and then that person will turn out to have extraordinary powers and, and beat them. And it's very enjoyable for the viewer because we know that this person has a secret identity and we know that they actually have the upper hand in this scene in which they are being underestimated. Oh, because I guess you're saying like because we're genre savvy or we know the character from other yes. media, we're like, oh, that's that's Spider-Boy. Yeah, this we is Spider-Boy. You don't know about exactly. Spider-Boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... <laughs> that, and and, there's, and obviously, you know, dramatic that sense of I have I have knowledge that, that this character in a scene doesn't have is a, a, the essence of drama. Um, like uh, uh, you uh, don't know Bruce Banner has just done. <laughs> you don't know that that's his his catchphrase. That wouldn't mean anything to you because you don't have Hulk as a as a intellectual property. Exactly. But <laughs> the uh, the counterpoint to this is when you read Dracula and you're like, guys, you are not making sufficient efforts to avoid a Dracula. <laughs> like, everyone knows not to do these things, except the only people who don't know are the characters in the novel Dracula, because it hasn't been written in this world, which makes you really vulnerable to Dracula. <laughs> um, and, yeah, uh, vampires are perhaps the best example of, like, the rules of vampires. I can't, I hate them. Um, I don't think that, I don't want to know what the rules are. Can you invite them in? Can you not? Are they allowed to do this? Can they get up during the day? I don't care. Um, I, I, I reject any any attempt to formalise what the rules of vampires are, because I don't think there should be, because there's not because they're magical. They should be able to surprise you. And 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 yeah, and I've I've you know I've often 
a wasted evenings of my life wondering when a house becomes a house that then uh, a, a vampire can't cross. Like, <laughs> what point? Like, what if you were on? If that can, like, if they were on a building site, would there be a point where the house became a house? I don't know. It feels like someone should have tested. And then I'm just like, this isn't real. <laughs> and I've spent the and and I can't sleep because I'm thinking, oh, how would that? Oh no, is is that a story? No, not really. Um, yeah. Uh, I can suppose, you can you talk? A, I'm sorry, sorry. I, I think I, I realize. I think I, I I've meandered quite a bit. But I think I think what I'm getting at is that for me, there's something magical in stories and. There is, I, 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 I'm making a fuzzy distinction between real magic, which is which are things that strike you with that whoa, how extraordinary feeling, and, um, and something which I think is a sort of simulacrum of that, which which are the devices that fantastical writers have for 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 creating a sense of oh in people, some of which I think are less effective and overused, but easier to do and. Uh, and have some relation to pastiche. So perhaps I think perhaps I'm I'm probably more guilty of doing the the one that I'm saying is bad. <laughs> can can you um talk a, a a little bit just before we go on to um your book? I just wondered. I'm going to ask it like a very generic question, but it's about I, I just I'm interested basically. But how did you find yourself getting into Comedy, I guess, is very broadly. I know it's comedy isn't necessarily a, a sort of genre so much as a strategy. I realise uh, within that. But um, how did you find yourself getting into comedy? I don't know if it's something that you woke up one day and realised you were doing, or whether it was something you always <laughs> like setting your sight. To, yeah. Um, no, there's no "you're a comedian, Harry" moment. You know what? What, what was you? You said you you don't just uh, wake up. Uh, you, you didn't have a, a moment of um, the boss of comedy coming up to you and saying, you're hired. You are now Very much working not, for no. comedy uh, uh, TM. No, I, well, there was a clear switch for me into trying to do comedy. Stand-up isn't really focused for some reason on the concept of writing comedy. I, You know, I think... There are there are comedy writers who tend to write uh, scripted comedy and and comedy novels, and then there are comedians who are uh, do an awful lot of writing and focus a lot on writing, but but somehow uh, they're quite different groups a lot of the time for some reason. Um, but I think it's because to to be, to be a comedian you have to start performing comedy in front of an audience, and that often sort of comes before thinking of any good jokes. <laughs> you you sort of start to do it, and then the writing comes later. Sometimes, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, I'm 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 just thinking that was my experience. Definitely, is kind of going. Ah, oh, so I just kind of go up, and I saw this person being self-deprecating about their life. Yeah. So if I just go up and say I'm an idiot, people will find that funny, and uh, sometimes people just feel sorry for you. Yeah. And you go, oh, I guess it's not it's not inherently funny. <laughs> and, and then, and then, having that pressure of embarrassment makes you go. I should go away and write something that these people would would like, and and that kind of pushes you forwards. But yeah, they they're two very different yeah, things. Yeah, uh, sorry, what, I was going yeah. to go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, and what what seems funny um, in a room on your own is it suddenly can have a very different feel when you're saying it to an audience, and you go, oh. 
hang on, this... I suppose this is clever, but not... Oh, yes. But not funny. <laughs> but not funny, yeah, though. Clever, but not funny is the, is the main note uh, I'm sort of making in my head as I try new bits. Um, some of them aren't even clever. Some of the bits that aren't funny, but, <laughs> but some of them are. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. But the other thing you learn is that um, stand-up comedy isn't a joke delivery system. And you can you can turn up with a good joke and not get a laugh by being the wrong person to tell it or telling it wrong. You know the like like you say you, you, you if you watch a if you watch a middle aged comedian being self deprecating about their sex life on telly and go oh I'm going to do that as a you know a twenty year old person. Um, well, a twenty year old being self deprecating about their sex life is was like. Would, Nobody cares. Just keep practicing. You know, you, you're young. It's not, you know, if you're 20 and you have a bad sex life, that isn't funny because you're 20. Um, if as, as you start to age and things start to drop off, this is when it becomes... So the same joke told by um, somebody who looks like a slightly defeated, um, uh, you know, middle-aged person is not funny if given to, a, a, you know, a sprightly and attractive 20-year-old. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. No, it's and it's a it's it's a it's a wonderful moment when I've seen people tell jokes. Or I'm just thinking about the the performance poet Murray Lachlan Young Mm. being able to talk do a poem that just rhymes with ping pong. The the, the whole poem begins: "Is it wrong the thong? (laughs) Is it?" But he's so he can deliver it in such a posh way. Where that he that he get I'm watching him going. This is really funny, but I would not be able to get a single laugh out of him. Exactly. Saying, is yes. it wrong? Is it wrong the thong, or would it cause a contretemps? <laughs> and like, and it's really funny because he seems. But I'm like, you're the right clown to deliver this joke. But if I did that, it would not be funny. It relies on you being the person delivering it. And um, I I love seeing those moments where there's a joke that only that person could tell uh, because it's just, I feel jealous, but it's also wonderful. Absolutely. And I think that perhaps separates stand-up comedy from uh, comedy writing more broadly because the the person that the joke is coming out of, of and the way it comes out of them is so important. When you, I, I want to start talking about um, your book now, uh, Montgomery Bonbon, Murder at the Museum. Uh, I was wondering before we sort of jump in, because I think it's a really nice way of talking about kind of comedy writing, but also ev- everything we've been talking about, really, and the kind of genre and pastiche and all these things. And I wonder if um, you could just give a little sort of pricey before we jump in because i've read it you wrote it we both know what it's about but um <laughs> are you telling me some of the listeners haven't bought it yet what? <laughs> what quite yeah so i i think it would be for those who haven't quite uh got to it yet i wonder if you could give a, a little pricey so certainly they're, they're on the bus before we i'd be on. very happy to well the murderer was um no no i wouldn't do that <laughs> um yeah, having having, uh, I think I can't remember what I said about pastiche. Did I did I slander pastiche? Um, it, <laughs> you said I, you said it's for idiots. I, and yes, I think, that's, I think that's what I said. <laughs> uh, I also said that I was good at it though, so I de- I'm definitely like seven ninety nine just worth of good at it. Um, so um, Montgomery Bonbon is a uh, a, a whodunit. I, it's not a fantasy novel at all. It's a whodunit, another genre that I'm a huge fan of. And uh, it's 
a middle grade novel, which means that it's for kids aged, I think, 9 to 12. Uh, but older people can read it if they want. Tim did. So there you go. And um, the the premise is that uh, Bonnie Montgomery, a 10-year-old girl, is a brilliant detective. But children, of course, are not allowed to solve murders because they're children. So she uh, puts on a false moustache and a dodgy French-ish accent and becomes Montgomery Bonbon, who is a sort of uh, knockoff Poirot uh, that is convincing to everybody around her, uh, but allows her to uh, lead a sort of double life and investigate crimes. And Murder at the Museum is... Uh, I think it's a fair play murder mystery. Like, I, I wanted to do a proper murder mystery where there are, you know, reasonable clues. You've got a fair chance of being able to work some of the clues out, maybe all of the clues... There's a good chance that you might work out who did it, but maybe you won't. But at the same time, it's also a loving parody of the genre. So I get to introduce the conventions of the genre, make fun of them slightly, but also, I hope, fulfill them. So I'm, so it, I wanted to be the thing that I'm mocking at the same time as I'm mocking it, if that makes sense. This is a really bad analogy, but I'm just going to I'm just going to steam ahead with it anyway. But um, I suppose like when I've listened to Flight of the Concords songs and they are they require them being good at the genre so that they, when they've done a parody rap, it's the rhymes are good. And do you know the, the bus driver not... song? It's one of their older pieces and it's not in the TV series, the bus driver song. Uh, no, I don't. Absolutely. Look it up. It's the perfect illustration of exactly what you're saying. Because it's uh, it, it's it's them doing the sort of the folk duo thing, so it, it feels like one of Simon and Garfunkel's sort of funny songs, if you know what I mean. <laughs> um, it's it's really really funny. It's got absolutely that that sound, you know, the sound from that era. But also, it's weirdly touching. Like it it it's <laughs> like it is a great example of the thing it's a parody of in, in itself. Like it's it. If Simon and Garfunkel had recorded this funny song, you just go, it's one of the funny Simon and Garfunkel songs. I, I think like pastiche, I, I want to say like, I, I, I realise it can make an interview very awkward if the one person's just continually praising the book and then it sort no, of No, 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 I think we can live with a little bit of praise. <laughs> no, I think we can live with that. The little bit of praise okay. is fine. Um, yeah, I just like one thing that I really got um, all the way through this was just a sense of uh, someone writing it who was having a blast. I've had like a few books I've read. I was like Gareth uh, Powell's uh, Akak Macaque is another one where uh, you just feel like, oh, I'm having fun reading this. And I think you were having fun writing this because this is great. Like what a palette to be able to have fun with. And I, I, I feel like, um, how, how was it to write? Because I, a lot of the times when I speak to writers, um, you know, they, we, you know, we do the suffering artist thing. Yeah. Um, what did you have fun writing this? Cause it feels like you did. Well, thank you. Um, that's a, that's a very kind thing to say. Um, and, um, I'm, I'm mortified to have to say, no, I find it extremely unenjoyable. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, the, the whole, all, all of my artifice was put towards trying to give the impression that I find writing enjoyable. Uh, but, um, I, you know how it is. When it's going well, I enjoy it. And that's rare. And the rest of the time, I find it very difficult. Um, I'm not, I, I think what I'm, I'm sure it's a, a cliche now, but having written is more enjoyable than writing, I think. Like finishing yeah, a good Dorothy joke Parker is great. Used is it to Dorothy say Parker? I'm, I'm yeah. plagiarizing there. I mean, oh, I'm, well, maybe. Although uh, now I and the moment that leaves my 
my lips. I feel like Dorothy Parker is the kind of Einstein of writing Bon Mots <laughs> that just sound like Dorothy Parker could have said anything in funny and intelligent, but um, I think she said mm. it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it turned out it's been attributed to her because she was very witty. Um, what do you so? What you, you know? I think case, I can. Can I? Ask, I think I can, Sorry, some, uh, uh, inspiration just struck, and I think I can tie what I was saying at the start together to, with this which is something about how jokes work, because jokes are often mechanical devices. Like, the, you know, a, a pun is perhaps the best example of that. There's a sort of a... You can see there's a sort of structure behind how, how a pun works, and if you wanted to write a sort of a, a joke based on a pun or a familiar saying, you could take a sort of uh, a mechanistic approach to unpicking sayings and looking for words that can have double meanings or homophones and that sort of thing. Um but I don't think really that's the way humour works. I think the difference between a funny pun and an unfunny pun is uh, we, we we tell the good jokes from the bad jokes instinctively, I think, or um, pre-consciously or something. I don't mean to say that it's real magic, but um, that's why it's very hard to write jokes because it's hard to try to write a joke because uh, you have to... You have to wait until you thought of the joke, and then afterwards you can go, "Oh, that one's funny." But whereas this other one I wrote isn't funny, and I don't know why they aren't both funny because I wrote them both, and so it's delightful to write a funny joke because it's like hearing a funny joke, but also it feels like it comes out of nowhere. And every time you finish doing it, having not known how I did it the last time, I'm like, "Well, that's probably the last one. I'll probably never think of anything amusing again." And I, I so I think there's a parallel between. The, that and what I was saying about magic, which is the the the, I don't want to be too mysterious about it, but the 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 sense that it sort of uh, tickles that unconscious part of the the imagination and and goes ah funny ah magic you know the, it it doesn't necess- it isn't necessarily something can be circumscribed. Can can you rem- remember the sort of what made you? Want to, what was there a mo? Was there a, a sort of that moment of, oh, I think this is what I'm going to do. Where you decided you wanted to write a murder mystery. Where, how? What was the sort of genesis of, um, uh, well, Montgomery Bonmont stroke, uh, Bonnie Montgomery. What was there? Was there? Was it? Was it like incremental, or did it? Did you just? Was there one spark that made you go? Oh, I've got a a little image in my head and I need to make a world this could exist in. Well, yes, naturally I've completely forgotten how and when I came up with the idea for a character who, uh, you know, a a young girl who puts on a stash and solves mysteries. I can't remember that at all, but I I do know how the book came into existence, which, and I'm afraid lockdown is largely to blame because uh, I watched uh, an awful lot of detective fiction during the first lockdown, I watched um, an awful lot of uh, Columbo and... Um, oh, I love Columbo yes. so much. Although uh, Columbo is not exactly a whodunit, but still, it's very um, good. How Catchem, I believe, catch indeed. the... Uh... Um, I, I, I love a whodunit, I love a howdunit, a whydunit. Um, so I, I watched an excessive amount of um, televised detective fiction because it was an anxious time and uh, there's something very reassuring about uh, the knowledge that a a perpetrator is going to be caught and um <laughs> and I on Twitter a couple of years ago did a, a week long interactive who did it I called it 
where every day I put out a new video as a new character and um, people playing, quote-unquote, playing the game on Twitter could could vote in polls for um, to make decisions in the story and uh, try to work out who had murdered me. I was I was the victim. Uh, in a well, what, what was interesting was seeing some people share it as, uh, "Hey, there's a there's a cool Agatha Christie spoof on on Twitter. You should you should get in get in while it's still going." And seeing younger people going, "Hey, there's a cool Knives Out spoof on Twitter." And I was like, <laughs> "What?" I really like Knives Out. I'll take the compliment, but what? Um, but I suppose that's the way things work. I, um, I guess Knives Out is a is is what I'm talking about. It's it is a whodunit, but it's also a meta humorous commentary on whodunits. There, it's uh, it's joking around with the structure and the conventions while also delivering a whodunit that works. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, uh, Gronya, my editor at Walker Books, saw that who done it, and um, we started talking off the back of that. And uh, I, I told her the idea that I had, and uh, wrote a few sample chapters. And it took a very long time, and I was convinced nothing was going to happen because people don't offer you book deals, do they? Uh, but eventually, Walker did offer me a book deal, and I'm aware that that, that is uh, quite jammy, because the way you're supposed to get your first book published is writing the whole thing and then sending it and being rejected from 14 publishers and then walking through the desert without water and going through all of the hardships that writers are meant to go through. And um, I didn't do that. So I'd like to apologize to the listener for that. But but you saying, so you did it as a submission of, of a few chapters and a sort of plan of what the rest was going to happen. And then you got the deal, right? Yes. So you then had to finish it. <laughs> yeah. And that, I so completely that... regret it. Yeah. At that point, I, I regretted everything. Because I thought it would be similar to writing a stand-up comedy show. You know, it was 2021 and the Edinburgh Fringe wasn't happening. So I, so I wasn't doing a show. So I thought, well, you know, how long is a show? It's an hour. That's probably a similar amount of writing to a, a middle-grade novel, which would be about, you know, 30,000 words. Um, it's not. Like a stand-up comedy show is like 10,000 words. It's way, way more words. I don't know what I was thinking. It's a lot more work to write a novel than it is to write a... A stand-up comedy show and i guess with a show you, what you can then do is you take it in front of audiences and if they laugh at something if it's a comedy show you go well i don't need to agonize about that anymore because that is yep. that's funny i might not know why it's funny but it might be a cadence laugh i don't understand why you're laughing at it but you are laughing at it that stays and if something doesn't get a laugh twice or three times you don't go well no maybe if you're me you go well maybe if if they just find more discerning people um um that I, I but i must keep my but you can but i guess with a book you had to do quite a lot of that kind of in the dark how was i think that that's part be? of what's stressful about it and why i now having having always derided authors for all of that um uh, the business of writing leave me i am creating sort of self-indulgent waffle you got actually it is hard to hold your nerve for an entire novel for people who write you know proper long novels um like to hold your nerve and go i think this is good after 10,000 pages um that takes confidence so well well done to anybody who can manage that because i can't um and the uh, the anxiety and self doubt uh sets in really early on uh, it helps to have uh you know a very talented editor and uh, you know 
people that you can check with. But y yeah, you, I, I came to realize how insecure stand-up comedians are, even though it should have been obvious, because we... <laughs> yeah. We, we we absolutely we have that audience. We just check with the audience every two minutes. Or really, you should be checking with the audience more frequently than that at the end of every joke. Every 30 seconds, <laughs> yeah. you check in to see, are you enjoying every, this show? Every two minutes, like, sneak a glance at the audience to see if they're still there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the uh, the experienced comedians will learn to do, just out of the corner of the right. Just, just look to see if the audience are inching towards the door. Oh, oh. Like like a sort of one of those children's TV presenters in the 1980s who would pretend that they hadn't noticed the camera come in and then look up and go, oh, hello. <laughs> uh, can you, but nonetheless, um, I mean, you're saying all this and I know that you're being sincere as well. You're not just being self-deprecating, but... Um, no, my self-doubt is sincere, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, but also, the, but but I, I suppose the counterpoint to this is the book does exist. Uh, it's out there. People, including myself, are, you know, have and are enjoying it. Um, so these were things that you did overcome. And I, 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 I know that I will get angry letters unless I ask, um, what were the things that got you through this? Because they, I know now people are, you know, saying, but you did, but you did it. How did you do yes. it? What's How the did secret you of finishing things? This? Yeah, um, I guess like most people, I used to be terrible at finishing things, um, and I'm a bit better at it now. Uh, guilt, guilt is the large motivator, I think, to to, to for finishing things. Um, uh, it helps that um, I'm working with a brilliant illustrator, Claire Powell, um, who is fantastically funny as an illustrator, but also in demand, which means her schedule is uh, very busy. Um, and so while I'm panicking about trying to write uh, a book and, you know, a tour as a comedian at the moment, um, she, you know, she has a, an equally jam-packed uh, um, diary full of people who want her to draw funny drawings for books, which means that if I don't finish in time, she can't start drawing, which... which So somehow I think the, the, the knowledge that someone else needs... The book needs to be finished so that the drawings can start. Is a kind of pressure I think that is helpful. Whereas if it were, if it weren't illustrated, I, I don't know if I would ever finish it. <laughs> if, there were no, if there wasn't something like some reason why why it has to be finished, I think I would start. I would keep coming up with excuses. I, I think her uh, um, illustrations are amazing, and I also really like that um, she provided a map. As someone who, like you, has read a great deal of. Uh, fantasy in his time um i'm just always really really excited and chuffed when a book includes some and i think particularly with this story it gives you you know it lets us refer to something in this it's got a practical use if we're trying to solve the mystery ourselves. yes well the, the what i had in mind when i was sort of first pitching it was i wanted to do um like jonathan creek but for uh, kids who won't remember that um so like kids now um, and I, I think probably I didn't know as much about um, impossible crimes or uh, impossible crime fiction then as now, because I've, I've read a lot more of it since then. But uh, because uh, Jonathan Creek was my sort of first introduction to the impossible crime, um, whereas it really it is just a, a, a slightly uh, in, in the same way I was saying. Uh, about Knives Out, it's sort of a, a a witty take on a pre-existing genre, but that had fallen out of fashion by the time I was watching Jonathan Creek on the telly in the nineties. And um, the 
the mechanics of an impossible crime are quite important. Like, you need to know how the layout of the building is. You want to know what the door was made of, those sorts of things. And uh, and the 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 story isn't exactly a, a strictly impossible crime, but it's uh, it's close to an impossible crime. Um, the, there are seemingly impossible elements, and so I, I want to provide the map so that the the reader who's determined to try and work it out can come up with their own sort of theories about. I, th- I think it's because I'm a fan of magic, you know, and, and I keep going on about this, but I'm a fan of. When I was young, I was a fan of uh, you know conjuring that that sort of thing, and the uh, trying to wrap your head around okay how. How did this one solid object pass through another solid object? How could something have happened on one side of a door when everyone was standing on the other side of the door? These sorts of uh, puzzles appeal to me, and uh, and I think having a having a map, have, uh, having a you know, it's a it's a it's a funny book. I think it's it's full of jokes. It's full of characters who are over the top uh, and odd and eccentric, but it. Um, it exists in a world in which it isn't going to turn out to have been lasers or an alien or a ghost. It's going to be there's going to be a a mundane explanation for the impossibilities, which is I think part of the the fun of uh, the of a whodunit conjuring up a, a gothic or a ghastly scenario or an impossible or a magical scenario or a weird and outlandish scenario, and then explaining um, Scooby Doo style uh, <laughs> how it was done. Yeah, I was going to say, like, Scooby-Doo always has, you know, aside from the sort of sentient talking dog, <laughs> uh, the rest of it is 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 sort of very grounded in, ultimately, in in sort of scepticism and, uh, you know, uh, finding explanations for adults that you can't trust, really. But it, it, generally, I mean, I know there's some, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's not about, it would be disappointing if the Scooby-Doo mystery was, that were discovered that actually... It had been a zombie yes. all the time. Although there was, and a bit there was the 12 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, which was a se- the series in which they did meet real monsters. Yeah, and, and there but, were, that, and, but then, that, yeah, then and you've that, established that this is a different series where the rules are different, which I think is fine. Yeah, yeah, and I think, it, yeah, there was a 2003 uh, one, Mystery Incorporated, where it, like, full, like, David, like, Ike level, the Anunnaki were involved, <laughs> and Scooby Doo was like part of a tradition that went all the way back to um, sort of monkey and the journey to the mm. west of like sentient immortal animals. It was like really intense, um, and and maybe outside the normal Scooby Doo boundaries. But aside from that, yeah, absolutely. But, but um, is it canon, Tim? That's my question to you. Is it canon? We need to, we can't go on unless we've established if that was canon. I, I I believe like I, no I'm, I mean, I'm joking I, 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 I'll get into couldn't a care whole less about thing, whether it was canon. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah no I I um yeah I, I I think it was it was it was an interesting experiment um so I, the, I guess the final sort of thing to to round off I wanted to talk about is like now you've got is the second in the series is due out in October is that right that's right I um I've nearly finished writing it um. And so you're still, yeah. And then there's going to be uh, more after that. So, so despite, um, despite my complaints, despite my, despite my protests, you're still going. And I, I realize that the, um, some of the reason for that, as for all of us, is 
uh, contractual obligations and I have to eat. But like, <laughs> nonetheless, there are different ways we can approach stuff and you're, st- you're still doing it. So um, when you're, you know, chiving yourself along and trying to get what, what is keeping you going uh, aside from a sort of <laughs> from some sort of pure bloody mindedness and terror? What, um, you know, what are the things that uh, that you found that kind of get you going and um, help you to be in the place where the jokes and ideas can flow, I guess, is what I'm saying. What You know, because you've said we can't sort of like construct jokes uh, like uh, a clock, but we can sort of I wonder if there's ways that you can put yourself sort of in an accident prone state where you might stumble across yes that- uh, yeah i think i think you're absolutely right um i i, I am enjoying writing them I, or rather I'm, I'm i enjoy the anticipation of writing one and i enjoy having written them um and then the process of doing it is quite hard and i suppose i have an advantage compared to a lot of people writing children's fiction um I, you know there's, a, there's there is a lot of sort of high fantasy and in children's fiction and a lot of um a lot of epic stories where novel after novel the uh, the the characters will uh, you know m- move on and defeat ever greater foes and uh, and and solve even bigger mysteries um because this is a you know quite strictly a who done it there's something for me that's very pleasing in it not being a mythological epic narratively so you know, the first book is going to be a whodunit in which a murder is solved, and the second book is going to be a whodunit in which a murder is solved. And I think the third book is going to be a whodunit in which a murder is solved. And I don't expect um, Bonnie to become the king at any point. Or, do you know what I mean? I don't expect uh, that I, hopefully the characters will um, will develop and, and grow and relationships will um, uh, deepen at as the books go on, hopefully, if I if I am able to do that, but um, I, but what I don't have to do is try and work out. Oh well, what, where is where is the Bonnie Montgomery mythos leading? Because it's a whodunit, and um, I have the much more pleasing prospect of going. Okay, well, what kind of place do, do what kind of places do whodunits happen in? How can I? Um, tick off the conventions of this genre and at the same time do my best to sort of um, pay homage to them and fulfil them. So, uh, so far, a murder has not happened on a any kind of vehicle, train or a boat, and a murder has not happened in a in a big country house. Uh, the second one is set on an island, uh, which is a good place for a murder to happen. Nice. Uh, and so, well, the third book will probably be set in a, in a country house because she hasn't done that yet. So I go okay. Well, then, what what, uh, what what does a country house afford me? Maybe there's a hedge maze, um, and that's the point I'm in now with the third book, which is the point of sort of s- swirling around with various sort of uh, half grasped aesthetics that appeal to me, uh, and trying to work out you know what what the story is. But I, I'm aware that I'm you know it, it's that is different to the experience of trying to sort of originate narrative from the raw <laughs> materials of life um uh, what i'm trying what i'm doing is trying to come up with something which is original in the context of an extremely well you know clearly established genre i want to do something which feels distinctive but which uh chimes with uh, you know which has the advantage, I think, because this is for kids of being able to, you know, do a little bit of pastiche to keep uh, an adult reader amused with a sort of, mm-hmm, I recognize that. But for 
kids who might be reading, you know, of it, you know, detective fiction for middle grade is actually quite popular at the moment. But still, um, this might be the first whodunit that somebody reads. So when introducing the conventions, I, I want to be able to sort of say, well, this is how a detective story works, by the way. And if you know that already, you can you can enjoy this as a joke. But if you don't know that, I'm explaining it to you because I like them as well. Yeah, I think I think and I think you might be sort of slightly doing uh, yourself down in in terms of how much other people are writing pastiche. I think literary fiction writers are often writing a a kind of doing much the same thing maybe with slightly less self-awareness you know they 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 know the shape of a story in which a a middle-class couple have a a very slow drawn-out divorce (laughs) um and they know that at some point maybe there's going to be a long set piece where like they visit a a glass blower (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or, or you know, uh, and it's lovingly, do, but but genuinely, the the the, the you know, they will intuitively write that, but following conventions that um maybe they're just not totally admitting to themselves. And I think it's it, it it's about whether the kind of skeleton is visible on the like detective fiction really is the the skeleton of every story is detective fiction, right? Um, it really a character going through and discovering things. It's just that detective fiction has the kind of bones on the outside, and it's most honest about. Perhaps it. I do think, I think there, there is a different. This may be too deep for the this point in the podcast. I may be about to get into something, but I do think I I, I do enjoy degenerate narrative mediums. You know, I, I've written for video games. I, I love video games, um, even though. Largely speaking, in narrative terms, they are bad. Uh, I, I, I think they've got great potential, but they're very different to other media. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, like I said, I like magic tricks and conjuring and that sort of thing, things that aren't particularly cool, I think, these days. Um, I, th- I think there is an interesting feature of the detective story, which is that it invites us not to care about characters, really, <laughs> um, which is odd. And I'm normally in favour of compassion, but the good news is that the people in question are usually aristocrats. Uh, <laughs> I think that uh, P.D. James wrote a, a, a an essay or a series of essays about crime fiction, and I, I think she sort of reflected on the conservatism of the the genre. And she, she was a conservative, and um, uh, you know, most of the writers, uh, m- many of the uh, crime fiction writers were conservatives. Uh, John Dixon Carr was so conservative he left the UK every time the Labour Party were elected. <laughs> this is like the post-war Labour Party, like the best Labour Party. And he was like, not for me. Um, so obviously mad, a mad person. Um, but I think there's something... I refuse to pay for my operation. <laughs> the NHS, no, thank you. I'm going back to America. Um, and um, But I think there's something potentially sort of satirical. I don't want to say Brechtian because we already did Vladimir Prop, but there is something interesting, I think, about the way the the genre invites you to maintain a sceptical distance from its characters. Not the detective, obviously. We're very close to the detective and we, we really do care about the detective, usually, I, I hope. But it invites you to main, maintain a sceptical distance and I don't know what what narrative genres do that. What what I suppose perhaps the unreliable narrator, it, it, you know... Um, thinking of goggles the nose it, it asks us to take a sort of ironic distance from what we're hearing 
um, uh, yeah, so perhaps comedy has uh, an element of that. I don't know. I'm thinking out on my feet here. But uh, yeah, but I think, I think no, I, I agree with you. Now you've you've there is an element of a game to it, which I think not all fiction has. Or perhaps perhaps you're right that every every novel is playing some kind of game, and detective fiction lays its cards on the table and says the game is who did the murder. I th- yeah, that's um oh, that's really that's a really lovely um moment to end it on as we sort of as we as, as we've probably given birth to a whole new field of uh of critical theory <laughs> probably there and i think we'll just leave other people to we, just, we've uh, walked so yeah, other in the gaps. scholars can run um but um thank you very much if people want to um find you online in the sort of like least creepy professional way um what, what how can they do that well my youtube is called a beckett king but if you Google Alistair Beckett King, doesn't really matter about the spelling. Google is very clever these days when it comes to spelling. You should find my YouTube, wherein there are many little, very short spoofs and uh, skits. And I'm on Twitter at Mr. ABK, and uh, M-I-S-T-E-R-A-B-K, and something very similar on Instagram. But I'm not. Nobody follows me on Instagram, so it isn't as good. Um- I'm, I'll put links to all of those in the uh, show notes, as well as a link to uh, Montgomery Bonbon Murder at the Museum. Um, so, and I recommend everyone listening to uh, go check that out because it's very, very good. Um, Alistair, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Thank um, you for having me. I really me. appreciated it and enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Tim. And for everyone listening, I hope you have a wonderful week of writing.